I wanted to talk tonight about two different aspects of of wise speech and in particular to make it practical like how do we actually know that we're able that we're doing that in our speech I mean it's very nice to know the list of the qualities of wise speech um, but that knowledge uh, needs to come into our actual behavior and also to be understood at a, a more visceral level but starting with a bit of the knowledge, um, there's a sutta where the Buddha is talking to a prince, Prince Abhaya, and he um, it's, it has several elements to it, but one of them is that he gives a teaching on the uh, qualities of wise speech. And he says that, um, he gives an example of, of himself and how he speaks. And so he says, well, I only speak uh, what is true and what is beneficial and as for things that might be unwelcome or unpleasant those I know the right timing for that's a summary of the uh, teaching that he gives Prince Abaya on speech so it's interesting right there's two qualities that always have to be there true and beneficial and then within that though um, you can imagine that we've all had this experience is that we need to say something to someone that is not going to be pleasant for them but it might be true and beneficial and so then the question is well should you just walk up to them and say it any old time and the answer is no actually um, we need to know the right timing to say things like that that are true and beneficial but are not going to be pleasant for someone um, so I want to focus tonight though on those first two, the ones that are always the case, so speech that is beneficial and speech that is true. And each of these sound very good, at least they sound nice to me. I would like to speak things that are true and beneficial um, as much of the time as I can. But when we start looking at the details of those, it can get kind of interesting. And it actually it can be an entry point to looking more deeply at our own mind and looking uh, more carefully at different elements of the teachings, actually. So let's see how some of that unfolds by exploring just these two qualities, true and beneficial. So I'll start with the beneficial, actually. And I do have some questions for you as we go through this. Um, since I suspect all of us have at least put some effort into this way of speaking. We don't just speak willy-nilly. Um, so first of all, let me ask you, what does the word, what does beneficial mean? Like, what is beneficial speech? When it says that, it's a nice word, but what does that actually mean practically? Helpful. You can just, what? Helpful, Helpful yep. What else? There's multiple aspects of this. Helpful is good. Could be healing. Healing. Yeah, beneficial speech is healing in some way. Maybe useful in some way. Yeah. So we have a sense of this. Um, another one I've heard is, it's kind of captures several of these, is that Beneficial speech is speech that will have good consequences. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fair enough, right? <laughs> but then we need to, we need to look at that. Um, so, you know, we would like what we say to have a, 
a good result. Does that mean that the result is that the person likes us? Hmm. <laughs> maybe, but maybe not, right? So we have to we have to maybe tease apart a little bit what this is. And then I want to focus though on the practical aspects of this. You know, you have this idea in your mind, okay, I'm gonna I wanna say something that's beneficial <laughs> in this conversation. Not that we're, you know, bent on, okay, how can I be how can I help this other person and solve all their problems? That would be taking it a little bit far, but you know, we're we're speaking and we're about to open our mouth and the question is, how do you know what you're about to say will be beneficial? Like how does that decision happen in your mind that this is an okay thing to say, it'll probably be beneficial? There is something going on there if we're practicing path, practicing wise speech. But have you ever looked in your mind at what your criteria are for opening your mouth and saying something that you think might be beneficial? So I'm giving you a moment to reflect. And there's, again, multiple ones of these, but I'm curious if anyone thought of anything. Did anything come to mind? How do you know it will be helpful or useful or healing? I mean, of course, you don't in an absolute sense, but how do you suspect that it will enough that you'll, you're willing to say it? It helps if you know the reality of the other person at least a little bit. Yes, something of, you need to know something about the other person. Thank you. And Evelyn, you had something. It's related. It's are they going to hear it in the way, even if I mean it, if I'm saying it from a good place? Yeah. It are is, am I saying in a way that they're going to be able to? To or hear. Just, it. Are they going to be able to hear it? Right. With the flavor that I intend. Because sometimes that's not possible. Actually. Right. Sometimes that's not possible. Yeah. We all are thinking from specific examples when we answer these questions. <laughs> sometimes, at least. Yeah. So. Um, but this is a relational quality. I mean, we tend to think of beneficial speech like, oh, I'm a person who can speak beneficially, but actually it depends on the other person, too. If what you're going to say is beneficial, you have to know something about the other person as well as about yourself. So I want to go through, um, this is from my own practice of things that I have found that are qualities that are useful to consider if we want to speak beneficially. Uh, they're not from a sutta. Okay. But they could probably be found in there somewhere. <laughs> the first, um, and these aren't in any particular order, the first is that it's useful to have some kind of background information about the other person. <laughs> and, you know, for example, and this is really truly cognitive information, like, um, what organization does this person work for? How did I meet this person? What friends do we have in common? What is this person interested in? Um, what do I know, if anything, about their family, cultural, and religious background? You know, this kind of information, of course, it's, you know, you don't, you're not going to say those facts necessarily, but if they're there, that helps me at least choose what to, what topics to touch on and what topics maybe to avoid, um, and, you know, some something about what details to include in what I say. 
Uh, of course, you don't, you can't know all of this, but if you do, it can be used, right? Um, you know, if I know that somebody's family is from Hawaii, I might be able to use that somehow in connecting with them in a certain way. If I know that they love horses, if I know that, if I remember that they work for uh, a university compared to, or a nonprofit, or a business, or they run their own business, um, those can be useful contextual details in choosing how to speak with them. Now there are times, this is, uh, maybe I listed this one first because, you know, you don't always know. <laughs> this one's not always available. Um, one thing I do is I volunteer as a spiritual caregiver in the hospital. Well, I walk into a hospital room. I don't know those people, <laughs> you know. I have, Literally, I have on my sheet, I have their age, their name, and their the stated religious preference that they gave when they came in, when they were admitted. That's it. I don't know why they're there. I don't know who their family is. I don't know their cultural background. Um, and still, I walk in and say, how can I help? <laughs> so we don't always have this one. But if we do, <laughs> it can be useful. Um, so the second one is maybe then bringing it a little bit more more real in that um, this is information we would always have, which is in the moment information about how they seem to be. And, um, you know, this is, are they, do they look tired? Are they, what is their body language saying? What is their tone of voice saying? What is their facial expression saying? What vibe are they giving off? Now, granted, we don't sit there and think about all of that kind of logically before we start speaking to them, but, and it's hard actually to get all of that data and still, <laughs> you know, um, carry on a conversation sometimes. Some people are better at it than others. It's something personally I've had to work at a bit, um, being somewhat introverted and more of an intellectual type myself. Um, this is an area where I've practiced and these skills can be, uh, can be cultivated if you don't happen to be a natural social connecting type. So um, it's useful to think about these other things, um, bring them in. Generally, speech is beneficial if it in some way harmonizes with how the other person is in this moment. Now, if the other person is in a very bad state, they're very depressed or sad or angry or fearful, then of course we don't want to literally match that and become that ourselves. So when I, I use the word harmonize deliberately in that we can take into account how they are while still um, having in mind that we want to say something beneficial and something wholesome um, that will help keep the conversation in a, in a good area. It might be that they're just bent on complaining or tearing someone else down or something and you know you don't want to participate in that necessarily but somehow harmonizing with their energy and trying to make it overall beneficial can be helpful. So there's a lot of information coming from the other person that will help us know how to how to do that if we are open and pay attention. There's also information that has to do with the uh, the context of the situation in our relationship. So this is um, maybe related to that first part, but you know, for example, what relative roles are we playing 
So this is, has to do with, am I speaking with a friend, with a work colleague, with uh, somebody that I'm a mentor for, with somebody I don't even know that just approached me on the street? You know, what is, what is our relative role here? Um, for me, I consider, uh, is it okay to use Dharma language or not? Because <laughs> um, if it is, I would I like to do that. Um, if I'm with a Dharma friend, for example, um, but there, I wouldn't do that with someone for whom it wasn't appropriate <coughs> necessarily. Um, also, the uh, particular situation, are we in the grocery line and we've got a few minutes to talk, or are we out on a long walk and we have a long time? Uh, that that affects what topics I would bring up and in what way when I'm, again, when I'm paying attention. So speech is beneficial when it's appropriate to the relationship and the context that you're in, in some sense. So all of these have had to do with somehow the external part, the other person and our relative roles. But very important, and this is really where practice comes in, is our internal sense also. Um, There's going to be five of these, by the way, and this is number four. So our internal sense is um, very important, and that's something that many of us have had to cultivate also because we're generally, when we start, we're very externally focused. We are so hyper-attentive to them, to the situation. Maybe we're scared and, um, you know, it's all kind of difficult to be mindful during speech. And then we discover that there's this vast inner resource if we include ourselves in the context of what it is that we're saying. So beneficial speech includes benefit for us. It's not at all selfish to think in that way. So I can include my own mood. If I'm feeling tired, fearful, a little vulnerable, sometimes that mood just comes over me. It doesn't have to necessarily do with the external situation. I don't have to choose to say something that's going to further agitate my mind. Um, We do have choice about how far we go in a conversation, what we decide to say, if we decide to make it short or long, based on our own sense. It doesn't have to only be what's going to serve this other person. If it's going to harm us doing that, it's not the right thing. So our, our inner situation matters too. And then we can also, when I'm referred to this inner resource, we actually also have an inner dimension that helps us know whether something kind of feels right or doesn't. You know, if we're about to say something, there can be a sense of mm, starting to go in a direction I don't want to go. And so then we, you know, we can, we can if we're willing to exert that energy, we can uh, not go down that road. Um, that can even happen actually in our, in our thinking. Um, there's a lovely story of Andrea Fella, I might have even told it before, where she had been going through a lot of anger. She was so angry at a person. She kept reliving that anger even though she wasn't with them. And um, one day she was cutting an apple in her kitchen and the train of thought started again. And she watched her mind lean toward that anger that she'd done a zillion times and then say, no, I don't want to go there right now and turn away. 
and she was just amazed. I mean, this is very early in her practice. I don't even know if she started sitting yet. She just started doing mindfulness practice. Um, and she was so amazed that her mind was unwilling to get on that train after it had been on it so many times that she said that she sank to the floor with the knife in her hand that she was cutting in the, whatever she was cutting in the kitchen. So um, we can have that experience in speech also. We start to say something and realize this is not going to be beneficial for them or for me, and we just sort of don't do it. It's quite amazing. So don't neglect your inner sense at all. Uh, I very much, and this may need to be done deliberately also if you haven't deeply practiced mindfulness of speech, um, the ability to stay aware of your own mind and body while you are talking. So for instance, right now, I um, am feeling myself sitting. It's often very helpful to feel that where you're grounded if you want to be mindful while you're speaking. So feel your butt on the chair or your feet on the floor. It's just like an anchor point. Um, and then you know, also feeling, say, the energy flow in the body or the intention in the mind. It's not 100% of the time that we can do this, but we can at least start to practice that, and it, it matters. We can check that we're not falling into habitual patterns. How many time, How many people in our lives do we have habitual patterns that we play out with? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, there's that. We just had that same conversation that we've had where she says, why did you do this? And I say, I didn't do that, or whatever it is. But, you know, you have the thing and you realize, oh, I've played that role so many times. But it only takes a little bit of mindfulness to change that. I just had one of these recently, so it's on my mind. It's like, oh, I did that one again. Okay, still working on that. And then the, um, the fifth factor in noticing whether what we're about to say is beneficial is um, intuition and spontaneity is that there can be times where it's a little different from the previous one of including just our inner sense of how things are there can be stuff that comes into our mind that out of left field that feels like it's okay to say but we have no idea why and we've never said anything like that before and we just say it and sometimes it's exactly the right thing we've all had experiences like this also where we're with somebody we're really connected to them or at least we're connected to ourselves and the situation and um, we say something we didn't know we were going to say and the other person says oh. and you realize oh i could never have done that if i was thinking about it it doesn't happen too often in the hospital, but sometimes when I've been volunteering with chaplaincy because, you know, I'm kind of paying selfless attention to this other person because I don't know them and they don't know me, so there's sort of, you know, nothing at stake in a sense, and so I can just listen. And I've had moments where I just, um, yeah, where I was able to say something. And sometimes it was something kind of funny, like I had a, um, I was talking with a guy who was, um, Slight, clearly a little bit either highly medicated or slightly uh, mentally ill, I wasn't sure which, but he was um, very proud that he was a Southern Baptist. He told me what river he'd been baptized in, and he went off on various tangents about his life, but he kept kind of, um, you know, returning to his faith, and so I was nodding along with him, and 
I did notice that he had a sitter with him, which means they have somebody in the hospital, always, like a hospital staff member in the room, because the person might leave or hurt themselves or something, and they, so they can't actually even be left alone in the hospital room. So he had a sitter with him. And then um, in a moment, he kind of um, peered at me. This was when I had my hair very short. I had a crew cut at the time. And he peered at me as if he was seeing me for the first time, even though he'd been talking for a long time. And he said, are you a Hare Krishna? <laughs> um, surely based on the hairstyle. And out of the blue, I said, today I'm a Southern Baptist. And he laughed. He laughed so hard. And he, and he looked in my eyes and actually smiled. And it was clear that that was somehow meaningful to him. I don't know why I said it. It's a silly joke. It's maybe not literally true, but um, in the, it was true in the moment. It was true in the moment, and um, you know, and then the moment flowed on. But there's room in our lives to for for responses like that. Sometimes these teachings on wise speech can tangle us up because we're sitting there. Okay, is it true? Is it beneficial? Is it the right time? It's like, did I get it all right? It's like, just speak. Just you know, just speak at some level. Once we've once we've um, worked a bit on this, and sometimes you'll get it wrong, and that's okay too. <laughs> uh, so, beneficial speech. I want to talk also about truth in speech. In this one, we might immediately say, oh, getting serious now. We're talking about whether things are true or false. Um, this is an area that's really fascinating, actually, because um, there is, of course, truth and falsehood. Are we saying something factually true? Of course, we may not be, but we might not know it, and that's okay. Also, but are we, you know, we're not. Are we deliberately lying or manipulating? That's in itself a whole practice. But I've learned to relate uh, to the word truth a little bit more flexibly, in the sense that truth is something that's important to me. I was originally uh, from the sciences. I studied science many years ago, and so I, I was. Um, interested in truth. I had a kind of a reverence for the truth of natural law that is studied in science. And one thing that appealed to me about natural law is that it was independent of what I wanted, it's independent of human desire. There's something easeful about that. Um, it's similar to the feeling of not-self. You know, it's not about me. The gravity is not about me. It doesn't care whether I want it or not. <laughs> Um, and there's something really uh, satisfying about giving yourself over to studying something like that. This is one of the appeals for scientists, even though many of them won't frame it that way. So, um, in a sense, this gives us a little taste of the same relief from self-centeredness that we experience through spiritual practice, in a sense. Um, so, I can say, though, that Buddhist practice, when I uh, left the practice of science and took on more of this spiritual practice, I found that my understanding of truth had to begin including other dimensions. And in particular, um, there is, besides this kind of, you know, natural law truth, there is the experiential truth of the moment. You know, what's true right now? Um, it's true that we're sitting in this room together, there are various things in my body and mind that are true. I can't prove them to you because you're not experiencing them, but, um, and the same for you. 
there's something that's true for you right now about your mood, about your how you feel, are you hungry or not, are you tired, what does your body feel like. These are true things. They're not, they're experienced, so they're true. Um, and so this truth uh, affects how it is that we decide to speak. Remember I talked earlier about you know, the truth of how your mood is of maybe affect what you decide to say. If you're in an angry mood, you might deliberately say something very kind. Partly you feel kind towards the other person, maybe, but partly it's because you know you're angry and you're counteracting that, right? That can be a, a reasonable way to speak. So there is this truth of the moment, and there's a truth of the situation with the other person, and the way that that, that each of us is conceiving of it actually affects how it unfolds. So what we perceive and what we see as true in a situation affects how it unfolds. Um, Evelyn mentioned earlier, the other person might not be in a place to hear what we're saying. That has to do with their view, with their view of the situation. Like if somebody I'm speaking to, I know happens to see me in a certain way. Oh, there's Kim. She's the one who, you know, a month ago said something angry to me and forever I'm going to brand her as the angry Kim. And so if I know that that's how they see me, I might, might change how I, you know, how I speak. So there's a certain thing about the truth of the moment. As in, and then there's the way then we start to see that we're creating, you know, we're creating a certain amount of truth, relative truth, through our perceptions, through our views, and through what we then do about that, the choices that we make. We are participants. We are participants in our world very much. And this becomes kind of more and more evident as we do more practice, that we are not uh, neutral entities observing a universe the way the ideal in science is, for example. We are very much creating creating our world. I'll give kind of a um, an example from my own life as I started to discover this. Right as I, right out of graduate school, I worked as a um, as an analyst, and um, part of my a technology analyst, and part of my job was to forecast um, how many widgets of a certain type would be sold in the future. You know, like I was an analyst for a certain kind of technology, and I was supposed to say, well, next year there will be a million units sold, and the year after that, two million, and then you know, kind of forecast that out and then companies would use that to decide things about the market. It was a strange job, but um, I really thought, coming coming from science, I really thought in the beginning that my job was to be accurate and that if I had done a good job, if um, when that future year rolled around, that was exactly how many widgets were sold because, you know, we're trying to this is what science does. You make predictions and then you see if they're true. This was, I mean, there's something t to that. It's not that I wanted to have the wrong number, but um, it's very naive. It's <laughs> a very naive way of thinking in that um, analysts, technology analysts, are part of an interconnected system. And actually the forecast that they create affects what the result is. It's not independent of it at all. Uh, it's not like a natural system that's independent of human desire. You know, if I forecast that two million will be sold 
is different than if I forecast if 8 million will be sold. You know, different decisions will be made in companies if they believe my forecasts, and then a different reality will actually come about depending what forecasts I wrote. Not that I had control over the universe, wouldn't that be nice, but um, I was a player in a system, and I, I realized after some amount of time, like, oh, this is not the same thing as what I was doing in science at all. This is really quite different. Um, and it's not that I didn't know that, kind of in a broad sense, but just seeing it so clearly in that job really helped me to start to let go into what is a very Buddhist understanding of we are creating our reality. And the deeper and deeper you look into the mind, the more you see this is really true in ways that are quite, quite profound. So speaking truth is not, is simple in some ways and very consequential. Um, what truth of this moment we choose to highlight in our speech. We can never say the complete truth um, because truth with speech is conceptual. Um, but we can say something that is relatively true and the subset of reality that we pick out to put into that statement of relative truth matters. It matters. That's why there's wholesome speech and unwholesome speech. So um, the scientific view assumes that there's an objective truth, but in fact, even in this relative world. But in fact, the mind is actively participating. We can't let go. We can't ignore the role of the mind. Now, some people go to the opposite extreme then when they hear statements like that. They go to the opposite extreme and say, well, uh, pure relativism must be the answer then. Everything is completely rel relative. It's all constructed. Therefore, there's no real standards. Anything could be true. This is complete nonsense. <laughs> there's, there is not complete relativism in that sense because the human heart is not a neutral entity. The human mind is not a neutral entity. It has values of some kind, even if we're not in touch with them. Um, the mind and heart are not totally unbiased. They generally want not to have suffering. That's um, one of the fundamental movements. And so instantly, just by having a mind, having a mind present, uh, there's a directionality, if you will. There's a a bias created, and so we accept that there is this relative truth. There is relative wholesomeness and unwholesomeness. This is the basics of ethics. Our natural desire not to suffer helps create a reality in which practice is possible. It becomes possible to move toward less suffering. So we should be glad that there's this bias. <laughs> we use it to, to do our practice. Now, there is a truth that is outside of relativism. That's something, a matter of faith, if, if we're not awakened completely. Um, but this, this truth of this type is not something that can be stated. It's, you know, it can't be put into conceptual words. It's not something we can write down or objectively talk about, because it's just not conceptual. But it is there. and. That is what the spiritual traditions point toward, and it's something that we can know. We can know for ourselves or touch in some way. 
So an interesting question then is to say to ask the same question here as I asked about beneficial speech. How do you know what you're about to say will be true? Uh, it's interesting because the answer is similar, I think. What do I know about the other person? What's going on in myself? What are the roles that we're playing? And what we're speaking is to be true to that, to be true to the truth of the moment. I aim to speak at the deepest level of truth that is possible that doesn't cause harm. Yeah, so it is possible to kind of get into our, you know, deep Buddhist understanding <laughs> or something and and say a, tr a, a truth that is um, <coughs> true but is not beneficial in that sense. Like, it's suppose, um, you know, somebody is in grief um, or very suffering in some way, it can be tempting to bring in abstract wisdom and say, well it's all impermanent, you know, or it's not really personal. This may not be helpful. It's maybe true. It is true to say everything is impermanent. That's a fair enough true statement. Um, but it may not be helpful for that person. So I think the deepest level, but you don't have to just go with the total shallow surface level chit chat kind of truth. Uh, so I say aim for the the deepest truth of the moment that will be still beneficial, <laughs> if that makes sense. So these are the guidelines that the Buddha offers that are uh, always to be kept in mind as true and beneficial. And you know the other ones about whether they're going to like you for it or whether they're going to like what you say, that has more of a timing aspect to it doesn't always have to be said, doesn't always have to not be said. But I encourage um, taking into account some of these dimensions, you know, rather than carrying the abstract idea, let's see, is it true, is it beneficial, is it timely, um, and kind of asking those questions which are really kind of about words. Uh, instead, tuning into more of these experiential dimensions that we talked about today, which I know you can intuit, because when I asked the question, there were good answers about, well, you have to consider the other person. Um, so considering the other person, considering the situation, and especially feeling inside your own heart and mind what is going on while you're speaking, I think this is what was pointed to with the wise speech practice, is mindfulness during speech. My suspicion is that the abstract teaching about true and beneficial and so forth is actually the result. If you are mindful and take into account these things, your speech will be true and beneficial and timely. So start from the foundation and get the result. Don't start from the result and try to make it. Does that make sense? Practice is from the inside out. I hope these tips are useful, and I'm I'm curious if you have any questions or comments. Yeah. <coughs> what about situations where you see that somebody's putting, causing harm to other people, or putting other people at risk? They may truly not see it. Right. And so you know, if you say it. It's 
it's it's you know the intention is to help it's true and beneficial it's true and beneficial but it could and especially if other people aren't saying it like if you know but it but but it may be feel really untrue and and uh, unbeneficial to yeah. the person, no matter how you say right. it. Like it'll be unwelcome. So then there's the timely. Really then there's the timely aspect. And truly not, um, you know, if somebody's impaired in some way, they might, they truly don't see it. Like they really won't. Right. But if you're preventing harm for other people, for third parties, you're trying to. It can still harm. be. It can still be beneficial. Um, yeah. But what's the? I mean. It's a tough one, right? Because there's no abstract guideline yeah, for that. Yeah. It's um, you yeah. have to live with. You'll have to live with having done that action. So you'll can consider yourself also. What what would I feel better about? I did the action, and it was tough for this person, or I didn't do the action, and some third party got harmed. Which would I rather live with? Or you do the action knowing that the person probably won't hear you it. You do it knowing that they won't hear it. But you want to seek up because mm-hmm. yeah. No, that you said you tried. Yeah, so you can feel like you tried. If there will be harm to you in doing that, um, you should consider that also. Will they turn around and attack you? Um, Something like that. Decide how that's going to sit for you. It's a very personal decision, and there isn't... The Buddha was careful not to give really specific sorts of guidelines because he knew there were situations like the one you're uh, putting forth yeah, there's no, there's no one answer. But these are the factors that we bring into consideration and then we see what happens in the moment. Yeah, and there's no life where everything we said was perfect and we never suffered for, <laughs> for having to say difficult things. It's always part of being human. Yeah, Glenn. Uh, seems like a timely topic. How can we put it into play, given what seems to be a rise in speech police in the form of political and religious zealots? Yeah. So you mean that um, various there's when you say speech police, um, that's you're saying that speech is being curbed based on. Um, religious or political principles. That, Can you be more specific? Yeah. I wouldn't insult the word principles, mm. but I mean, yeah. there's, there's a. There seems like an increasing number of people who want to get into your face with their. Particularly if you're speaking and they disagree with you, mm-hmm. and it seems most prevalent in, in things of a political or religious nature. Yeah. Yeah, so we might generally call this the quality of the public discourse, and it's not good right now. It's really not good. I, I will acknowledge that. Um, Again, there isn't one single answer to this, but um, one idea that I carry in mind as I move through this space is that 
I want to be careful that what I'm adding to the political or general collective discourse is true and beneficial, at least. And so I will, you know, I'm, I'm careful to make comments that are non-inciting, that are true, factually true, I'm careful about that, or speak from my own experience. I feel this, I experienced this, that can't be wrong. Um, but I will acknowledge one dimension of what you're saying, which is that there is um, uh, a little bit of tension in the wider discourse between um, freedom of speech and a sense of being offended. Um, so simultaneously, humans don't like to have their speech restricted. We can say that in general it, it's not comfortable for our being to have our speech restricted. And so um, generally societies that, that encourage free speech or that are open to free speech have a better feeling for people, right? On the other hand, um, uh, free speech also invites people to say things that are offensive in some way or that are insulting, you know? And so then the question becomes, well, where is there a line there? Um, are we gonna say that some things are too offensive to be spoken and decide that free speech only goes so far? I don't have the answer to this, but I want to acknowledge that there's that tension. There's a tension between two different values of speaking freely and speaking kindly. We would like both to be possible, and sometimes um, they're not. And so then how do we respond to that? And again, I'll go back to, well, just make sure that what I say is of this quality, of this character coming from my heart in a good way. And in the end, everyone is the owner of their own karma. That's also a helpful reflection. Yeah. I think it's, it helps, too, to, to realize that what is true for me is not necessarily true for that other person. They may be speaking from their heart. Exactly. You know, but, and I might find it terribly offensive, but th that's their truth. That is their truth. Um, yes. As long as we don't slide into complete relativism, relativism, everyone's truth is equally valid in that sense. Um, maybe it is in some sense, but um, yeah, I would agree with that. We can account for the fact that they are coming from a different value system. We may maybe then inquire, oh, what is it that, you know, inquire somehow to find out what it is that they're valuing. My sense is that it you know, deep inside all of us, we want not to suffer. <laughs> we would really like not to suffer, but we don't always have the skills to kind of manifest ways of being that, you know, that bring that about for us. But, um, yeah. It's a good assumption generally that what people are saying makes sense to them. If you come from that place, it's easier to be compassionate to somebody. Probably what they're saying makes sense to them somehow. Yeah. Thank you. Or is comfortable. Hmm? Or is comfortable. Or is comfortable. Yeah, maybe I was in maybe I was saying makes sense kind of, you know yeah. feels like it's the right thing for them to say mm -hmm. in some way. And if we don't think that it's like, hmm, okay. Maybe I need to learn more. It's also interesting to note, since our practice is really about 
Remember, it's about our understanding of our mind. That is not so much to judge whether or not others are obeying the ethical principles. We're supposed to turn the mirror. Mm -hmm. So an interesting question maybe for your reflection, and we should end soon, um, but I'll throw this out, is if you had no greed, hatred, or delusion in your heart at all, Mm. would it be possible for you to be offended? Would it be possible to take offense if we had no greed, hatred, or delusion in our heart? I think the answer is no. And so this is interesting to reflect upon and to look at our mind. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.